Uh, do any of you remember the show Intervention, the TV show? I only saw an episode or two, uh, but it was very compelling television. Because it's a group of people getting together to hold an intervention for someone that they love and they care about. Some of you haven't seen the TV show, but you've been a part of an intervention because you've sat in on one with friend or family or because your friends and family had to have an intervention with you. For those of you who haven't seen the show or haven't participated in one, basically everyone gets together because this person's addiction to alcohol or to drugs has become just this major problem. And they gather with this person to intervene in their life and let them know that what's happening has gotten out of control. And this happens because many times, even though it's obvious to everyone else that this is a problem, the person that's struggling with addiction is in denial about that fact. They don't see that it's an issue. What happens in their life is what what happens in a lot of areas of life. It doesn't take place overnight, but rather it's this slow fade. It's this slow process. And for many people, it's this vicious cycle. And I want you to to see this. So I want to show you uh, today what I'm talking about. For the the vicious cycle of addiction, there is the uh, initial use. And when the person uses the substance, the drug the alcohol, whatever it might be, they feel good. I, I'm not going to tell you that if you, if you drink or that you use a drug that it'll be all bad. It probably will feel pretty good. And for a person who experiences this, they feel these positive feelings. It feels good. It feels better than the pain, emotional, physical, whatever it might be. It feels so much better than what they have been experiencing that they can't get enough of that feeling. And that turns it into dependence. They become dependent upon it. They can't hardly live without it because whenever they're not on the drug On the substance, they feel that pain. It returns. But the more they use that substance, the impact diminishes. And so it doesn't have the same effect that it used to. And so they use the substance, they use the alcohol, the drug, whatever it might be, but they still don't have that same positive feeling that they previously did. So now they have a greater desire for that substance. And that greater desire leads to greater use. And it becomes this vicious cycle that grows and grows and grows. And while I might simplify it a whole lot really quickly on a slide, it's something that people experience over years or even decades. And their family has to intervene in this cycle so that they can realize just how bad it's gotten. But today we're going to have an intervention. And we're not having an intervention with anyone here because of their problem with drugs or alcohol. But we're going to host an intervention on money. Because similarly, money can become this issue, it can become this vicious cycle in our lives that we don't even realize. And I think you'll see that in Acts chapter 20 as we look at Scripture uh, together. Look with me at verse 25. 
Paul says, Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Paul is speaking here, and he's saying a goodbye. He's saying farewell. He's confident that he will not see these people ever again. He is confident that he's headed to his death, or he's headed elsewhere in ministry far away. So this is a moment where he can give them some important parting words. And if you've had a moment like this where you're saying goodbye to someone that you know you're not going to see for a long time, you know that this isn't a moment to talk about the weather, right? This is a moment to communicate what matters. Just recently, my, my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and I traveled to be with him for one of the important doctor's appointments. And while I was with him, we didn't talk about a lot of trivia. We talked about important matters. Thankfully, his diagnosis turned out to be far greater, far better than we expected, and he's doing great. Somebody actually sent me a video of my father this week riding on a dirt bike. So if you're curious how he's doing with his cancer treatments, it's going pretty well. Um, but when we're saying goodbye, or we think this will be the last moment, we say important stuff. And so he's giving them some final warnings, and first he warns them something that he's warned them many times before. He warns them about false prophets. Verse 29, he says, For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, among the flock, not sparing the flock. Paul is using the same language that Jesus used often to refer to the church as a flock, and he uses the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 7, 15, where Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They will, uh, they will appear to be among you or one of you, but they're really wolves. They're pretending to be sheep. Paul would say, they will come from among yourselves. This is where these false prophets will come from. They will rise up from among yourselves. They'll be camouflaged in the group. They will say that they're part of the church. False prophets don't show up and say, hey, listen, I want to teach you some heresy today. Hey, I want to teach you some things that are not in the Bible. No, they take Scripture and they twist it to teach things that they want to teach so that they can draw disciples after themselves. That's their purpose. That's what they're attempting to do. So Paul warns them of this and then gives them a command. He says, therefore, watch. Be on guard. The same word could be used, vigilant. Be looking out. And he says, and don't forget, remember that the entire time I was with you, I was preaching, I was warning you of these things, and I was shedding tears. This is important. Don't forget to be on the lookout. So Paul's saying goodbye. He's given this important reminder to be on guard for false prophets. That's not surprising if you've read the Bible and you know that Jesus and Paul, they often warned against false prophets who would lead people astray away from the gospel. So what comes next might be surprising, though. Because the next place he goes, after warning of false prophets, is he warns against greed. Verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all those who were sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel while I was among you. And you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. And then he quotes Jesus. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Which some have said kind of just sums up Jesus, all of Jesus' teaching on giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But Paul is telling us this. He's quoting Jesus after he's warned us of false prophets who pretend to be among us, who dress up in sheep's clothing even though they're wolves. And now he warns them of covetousness and greed. And the reason for this is covetousness and greed are among the least noticeable of the sins. I heard Tim Keller uh, once say that uh, people often know when they're committing sins, but there are some sins that are less obvious, right? Like virtually no one commits adultery unaware, right? You know that the person that you're with is not your spouse. It's obvious. But people often practice greed and covetousness not recognizing what they're doing. I've had people confess to me that they struggle with addiction. I've had people confess to me that they have fallen into the sin of infidelity. I've had people confess to me that they have lied or they've participated in gossip. I've never had anyone call me up and say, Pastor Daniel, I need to confess to you. I need to talk to a pastor because I am struggling with greed and covetousness. Because greed and covetousness are these underlying sins that are less obvious. And I think the reason why is that they, they, they slowly creep into our lives through these vicious cycles. And I think that you might be prey to one of these three vicious cycles. The first one would be a vicious cycle of poverty. Remember, I, I first kind of came to understand the cycle of poverty when there were people that our church would attempt to help, and then we would watch them make choices that led them further into poverty. And I was talking to a pastor friend about this, and I was talking how I was struggling. He says, you need to do some reading on the cycle of poverty. And I did, and then I could see it everywhere. See, the cycle of poverty starts off with this, um, this lack of money, which leads to a lack of material needs. So a person who's grown up or they've lived a good portion of their life without any money, hardly any money, just making ends meet, they have lacked the material needs that they have. They have had a hard time buying the food that they need or paying the rent or paying their utilities. And because of this, they've had these feelings of inferiority. They felt like they constantly have struggled, that they don't have enough. They've felt in fear that they haven't been able to provide for their family or for their children. And then something happens where they get some money. For some people, it's they get a better job and suddenly there is a windfall of cash and a signing bonus. Or they receive a tax refund. Or they reach out to some charitable organization that gives them money. 
And so they get money, but because they've been stuck in this cycle, they have these feelings of inferiority. Instead of using that money to buy the things that they need, they use that money to purchase things that will make them feel superior. They'll go and they'll buy something extravagant. I remember one pastor talking about how Uh, his church had helped this woman who was struggling to buy groceries for her family. They gave the woman money, and she went out and she bought brand new bicycles for her children. He said, what what was she thinking? What she was thinking is that she went to Walmart and she saw bicycles that she'd never been able to buy for her kids and how everyone else on the block had bicycles, and she bought those because she was wanting to feel good about giving those to her children. And then making decisions like that lead back to a lack of money. And it starts all over again. But that's not where all of us live. Some of you might not be stuck in a vicious cycle of poverty. You actually might be stuck in a vicious cycle of materialism. Instead of not having money, you have money. Some of you are like... I. This cycle sounds a lot more fun. I'd like to try this one instead to start with some money. But you have money, and then you go and you spend that money on stuff or things that you feel like give you status. And then, spoiler alert, they don't satisfy. So you feel dissatisfied. And you think, what you tell yourself is, the reason I'm dissatisfied is I didn't get the real nice car. I didn't get the house with the third bathroom. I didn't get the really big boat. I didn't get quite what I needed. So if I get better stuff, more stuff, different stuff, then I'll have that status or that feeling that I'm craving. And so here, someone who not only has money, they have stuff, they find themselves in the same exact spot. They're desiring more. And so to fix that problem, they get more through more work or more debt. And through more work or more debt, they have money that they can spend on stuff and status, but they still feel dissatisfied and they just continue around the loop again and again. And some of you are here and you say, well, that's not me. Because I have money and I don't spend it. Well, then you're probably in the vicious cycle of a miser. Or misery, which is also misery. Think of Scrooge. He had money and he didn't like to spend it. But what he also had was this lack of security. And a miser feels this lack, this fear that I'm not going to have enough. Some horrible thing is going to happen to me, so I've got to get everything I can. I've got to earn and save to feel secure. Not only that, I'm going to cut all of my expenses. I'm going to take the light bulbs out of the screws when I leave. That way it doesn't use any electricity. I'm going to save every little bit that I can, and I'll feel secure as my money accrues. But then, that feeling of security dissipates. Inflation hits, and suddenly that amount of money that you had, it doesn't go as far as you thought it would. 
Some of you are in retirement now, and the amount of money you thought you would need to save for retirement, you got there, and now you're there, and you're like, this is nowhere near enough money. And that, that feeling of security is dissipated. And so that person who's a miser, they constantly find themselves making their way back around this cycle. Now, I don't know where you fall, but I am going to guess that if greed and, covetousness, greed and covetousness creep into your life, you'll find yourself in one of these cycles, constantly making your way around, constantly desiring more stuff because you don't have the material needs that you need or you don't have the things that you want or you don't have the security that you crave. And as greed and covetousness come into our life, we find ourselves in these vicious cycles of poverty, of materialism, of being a miser. And we constantly feel as if we don't have enough. I remember Dave Ramsey was speaking to a pastor years ago, and, and he said, pastors, the, the main reason that people don't give is they don't have any money. They already spent it. It's gone. Or it's stashed away. I would add, they've already spent it and they don't realize that they have. I've, I've had people say to me, we, we've had people say to Nicole and I, uh, Pastor, we can't afford to tithe. And I can completely understand that, that statement. We can't afford to give. But there have been times that people have said it to us unironically when they make more money than we do. And they drive newer cars than we do. And they're currently shopping for a boat or a camper and or a camper, right? They feel like they don't have enough to be generous because they're spending it all. It's constantly going somewhere else. And we could combat this in a few different ways. Like, you're here today and you're not giving, you're not being generous as the Lord has called us to be generous. You're not following what Jesus says here where Paul quotes him that it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. I could try to convince you in a few different ways. The first one would be fear. I could say, well, you better give because if you don't give, God's going to get you. <laughs> Listen, you better give money in the offering plate or this week your transmission is going to go out. Hey, you better give... Or that brand new boat you just got is going to sink, right? I could attempt to use fear or I could use guilt. How dare you not give? Shame on you when there's so many people that are in need. Or we could use sympathy. Look at this, this poor child who's starving. And you have so much. Or I could even use logic. Don't you realize that the greatest investment you can make is in the kingdom? Or, none of those work. We could use the prosperity gospel. Hey, if you give, God will give you more back this week. You want that boat? Give God 100 bucks. It's super effective on television. Raises a lot of money. And all of those might work in the short term but it doesn't bring transformation. And what we desperately want is we want there to be transformation. 
We want you to experience the security and the peace, the hope and the blessing that comes from Jesus. My hope through this series on money is not that you leave on a Sunday morning saying, all right, we got to give more. No, my hope is that you leave with a greater appreciation for the gospel and the hope that it brings. And as a result, you are free to be more generous, not just in church, but everywhere. You see, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. I want you to have that hope and that peace. And I believe that your heart will be transformed. Not that you'll be guilted or you'll, you'll be emotionally manipulated into giving. I believe that your heart will be transformed when you recognize what God gave for you. And I think that'll change the way that you give and you spend. What is it that Paul said to these people? He didn't say, hey, listen up. You better be giving. No, what did Paul say? He said, now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. In verse 32. What's the word of his grace? What is Paul talking about? The word of his grace is the gospel. And he would go on to say, I'm commending you to the word of his grace, which is possible to keep you and to sanctify you, to transform you, in other words. Paul knew that what would make the greatest difference in their lives is the gospel. That it would bring transformation. You see, the gospel gives us what we can't earn. It provides for us what we can't receive anywhere else. The gospel is the great intervention. Whether you're struggling with greed or covetousness or lust, whatever it is, any of the seven deadly sins, what will intervene and make the difference is the gospel. That's what you need. That's what you're desperate for. That'll make the biggest change in your life. You see, the gospel helps us turn upside down our thinking. Right now, wherever you're at in one of those three cycles, you're feeling like you need to do more to get more. You need to work harder to save more. You need to get more so that you can receive more, and then you will finally be satisfied. And what the gospel teaches us is that our efforts to earn don't work. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we earn is only death. What we earn is only more and more of that cycle. You say, well, Pastor Dan, that's talking, about, that's talking about the bad things that we do because we do bad things and we earn bad for the bad that we do. What about the righteousness? I do a lot of good things, Pastor Daniel. You know, Isaiah says, Isaiah says, all your righteousness is like filthy rags. And those filthy rags, it's not just a wash rag left on the kitchen sink. It's disgusting. And Isaiah is not saying that it's bad that we do good things. Isaiah is saying that when we attempt to earn our standing before God, what we work for, what we attempt to accumulate, it amounts to nothing so our standing with God, our status 
with Him. Our entrance to the kingdom is something that we are incapable of earning. No matter how hard we work, and no matter how many good deeds we save up, we cannot earn it. And so the word of grace, the gospel, is that Jesus gives it to us. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good deeds or avoid enough wrong deeds. You can't serve enough hours at the church or put enough money in the offering plate. You can't dress the part. There is no way to earn the status and entrance into the kingdom. It's only through Jesus giving it to us. And when we recognize what he has given for us, it changes everything. Not just our giving. It changes everything. Suddenly it becomes something that we want to sing about. This past Friday, the the kids came home from camp and... uh, They wanted to go get something to eat, and there's this Mexican restaurant that they like and I do not like. But because they're back from camp, I said, we'll go. So we go to this place, and they're doing karaoke. And not only are they doing karaoke, there's not a lot of people, and the guy's walking around with the microphone and going, what do you want to sing? All right. I don't think there is a, I'm I'm sure there's some amount of money, but it's a really high dollar amount that it would take to get me to sing something in front of a group of 20 people in some Mexican restaurant, all right? That's that's not my gift. This this is what the guy said, you look like you can sing. I'm like, you need to get your eyes checked. And he looks at Nicole and he says, can he sing? And she goes, no. You know what I did just a few minutes ago, sitting right here? I sang. Why? Because we were singing about the wondrous mystery of what Jesus had done for us. It changes everything when you realize what he has given for us. It'll change the way that you live. It'll change the way you think. It'll turn the world upside down. And part of that, part of that is how you spend and how you save. When you recognize how God gave. A couple weeks ago, we read the passage where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's that's a really good, powerful statement. But it's especially so when you think about who said it. Because Jesus said it. And Jesus said it while he was on his way to a cross for you and me. And think about where he came from. He came from the glory of heaven. He came from from splendor and riches that you and I cannot fathom or understand. And he left all of that and came here. 
His heart brought him here because he treasured us. He was willing to sacrifice himself because he valued us. I love the way that that Keller put it. He said, when we see how much he treasured us, we treasure him. When we see all that he left for us, he is our treasure. Friend, wherever you're at in your life, in your spending or your giving, in your sin, in your addiction, whatever vicious cycle you're running through. And we could have made a chart for every person here in the room that would have looked a little bit different, whatever it might be, including money, including addiction, whatever that cycle might be, the intervention that you need is the intervention that Jesus gave when he stepped in to our world for us. Christ came and he intervened for you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.